0: Ray, And welcome to the Beervana Show, broadcast in Portland on X-Ray FM and available anywhere on your favorite podcast
1: service. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. And you? I am. I'm doing okay. Yeah, I'm doing okay.
0: We are, of course, joining you from our respective homes where we continue to maintain a safe social distance. So you can probably tell that we are doing this apart after being together for our great Pilsner taste-off. Indeed, apart and together,
1: by the magic of technology.
0: Yes, by the magic of the intertube Magic of the intertubes. We are, we are virtually together. So, uh, speaking of the great Pilsner taste off, by the way, uh, I was left awash in Pilsner <laughs> because uh, mostly what I had to do was buy six packs of Pilsner. So I've been drinking a lot of Oregon Pilsners.
1: That uh, is, that sounds like
0: heaven to me. Well, yeah, that's sort of the two things that, uh, two things to say about that. The first is that uh, actually it was a wash in sort of leftover Pilsner after our little tasting because lots of the stuff was only poured out a third or a half of the container. And so uh, after our big tasting, I was left with the back porch full of half empty cans. (laughs) They were getting, they're quickly getting flat. But as a good Wisconsin boy, there's only one thing to do with beer like that. Is dump it all into a big pot and cook a
1: whole buttload of bratwurst, which I did, and it and it and it, and it works because it's not so crazy hoppy, which does make the bratwurst sick a little bit bitter.
0: Yeah, yeah, Pilsner's uh, a great thing to do. You know, as a as, as a Wisconsin boy, usually what you do is get some Miller High Life or some past Blue Ribbon and dump it into a pot, with some onion. Throw your. But this is by the way, pro tip: this is how you how you do bratwurst. Like, don't listen to the Germans. You go get your Johnsonville brats. You dump them in a pot of beer with some onion. You boil it until they're basically cooked, and then you grill them at the end to finish them off. Uh, you're welcome, everybody. Now you know. <laughs> now you know you've been doing it wrong. And anyway, so, so I, so I, I want, I wanted you to know that all that great pilsner did not go to waste. Excellent.
1: I yeah. trusted it would not. <laughs> and then the
0: second thing i was going to say is that i keep picking up these beers that we've had all 16 have got pretty much a little bit extra i keep picking up sort of a random beer a random pilsner and i have it and i keep going through the same thing which is i think to myself good lord this is a great pilsner how did it not make our top six which is just to say that uh, we made this point as we were doing it but there's just so many great pilsners these days and, and the fact that years didn't make the top six doesn't mean they're not fantastic prisoners on their own so
2: yeah it
1: means that math you know we yeah. we had six six slots that's beers.
0: right it's tough you have to you have to be you have to be super extra special to to make our top six but uh i should introduce you you are jeff alworth you have written books uh among the books you've written are the beer bible
1: and the widmer way indeed and you are Patrick Emerson. You are a professor of economics at, the, at our Oregon State University. That's right. Um, as long
0: as the university still, still exists. Uh,
1: yeah. The, <laughs> the <professor. laughs> yeah.
0: Actually, ironically, I'll tell you. I'll, so we're, of course, re- we're referencing the, the complications of starting back up in the fall with the COVID. Uh, but I'll say uh, what I've heard is actually enrollments are up. Um, And I think this has to do with the fact that um, we are a substitute for expensive private schools um, that might not be able to offer the full experience that you're paying for. And so I think people are starting to get a little practical and uh, maybe staying closer to home and going to their state university. We're also not like the University of Oregon that's as dependent on out-of-state students. but We'd like to be as as dependent, but...
1: Is it also true that that you were a little bit of a a leader on uh, online education?
0: Yes, yeah. Uh, Oregon State went early into the whole online thing. We have a big, robust online uh, school. Essentially, it sort of operates as a as a school within a school. So that the, the online campus, you can you can get an Oregon State degree on completely online. In I don't know, there's over a hundred now. I think degrees uh, areas of concentration that you can do. So we have a lot of infrastructure for the remote stuff that we need to do. So we're in a pretty good position there. And then of course they're planning on, uh, having smaller classes, be able to meet in person on campus. Um, so we'll see how it goes. I think there's, you know, as, as, as everybody, we're just waiting and seeing how the COVID winds change and, uh, and go forward. But the other thing that Oregon state has done is they've been, um, very early started a community, uh, community testing program. To see the prevalence of, of uh, COVID within the community, which is experience that they'll be able to to translate to the on campus community when it returns. Um, so they're they're hoping they're able to sort of stay on top of it and um, be able to to st- uh, tamp out
1: any outbreaks if they occur. So we'll see. Fingers crossed. Very cool. We'll we'll keep checking in because this is a, a subject I think many people are interested in. Um, so. You'll keep us updated. And as uh, the summer goes along, I'm sure there will be changes in uh, fine-tuning. So that'll be interesting. And
0: speaking of the COVID thing, Portland, the greater Portland area has moved into the phase one of the reopening. We're now sort of paused at that phase one. But that does mean that restaurants can offer uh, table service. And I hear that you went out and had a beer at our local watering
1: hole Wayfinder. And I know you went to a local watering hole, uh, Deschutes, because you were texting me from there. That's right. So I yeah, and we actually happened to be texting when you
0: found yourself at Wayfinder, sort of serendipitously. That's uh, true. Uh, so yeah, I was asking you to compare experiences. My experience at, at Deschutes was very positive. They did offer indoor seating, but we sat outside. They've sort of closed off every other outside table, so they're very well distanced. Protocol seemed to be very strict and, and well enforced, and everyone was wearing masks and gloves, and uh, it was great. It was really, it was really nice to get back out and uh, sit at a table and be served, and uh, had a great time. That was actually on. Uh, that was my Father's Day treat.
1: Hmm, nice. Uh, we went on. It's interesting you went on Father's Day because we went on Fourth of July. Uh, we had gone down to join the the protest uh, march for the Black Lives Matter. Fourth of July thing, which was weirdly cancelled and I have no idea. I haven't heard why that was. But anyway, uh <laughs> we thought, well, well, not so far. It's that starts at Revolution Hall, uh, which is not very far from Wayfinder, so we wandered over Wayfinder. And they had that was the first weekend they were open, I think. And they it was it was kind of cool. It was they had a, a tent outside and it was like getting into a club. There was a bouncer, it wasn't really a bouncer, but um <laughs> It was somebody who would, who would greet you there and they were seating people. It's only patio service. Uh, they, for folks who have been to Wayfinder, you'll know that, um, it's kind of cheap to jowl in normal times. They have a lot of tables out there. They had reduced the seating. So everything was spaced out, um, had to wear a mask, uh, anytime you're not in your seat, even, even just to walk over, uh, you know, you were outside the whole time, but even just to walk to your table. Right and the servers all wore masks the whole time. It felt as safe as anything I could imagine. If that doesn't work, then there's there's nothing that will work, right? Like yeah. that's that's the best case scenario and uh they had really strict standards. They had great signage. You went to the bathroom, only one person in the bathroom at a time, a lot of signage explaining what you should do and where you could go and how you how you should be. So, it was
0: Yeah, that was very similar to my experience at at shoots. It wasn't terribly busy. This was right at the very beginning of the phase one reopening. It was the first weekend that places could be open when I went. And there were, you know, uh, a decent number of people there, but by no means were they at their capacity um, as they had rearranged it. So I think people are still putting their toes in the water. Yeah. And apropos of your visit to Wayfinder, uh, on today's show, we have a special guest, Kevin Davey, who is the head brewer at Portland's Wayfinder Brewery. Wayfinder specializes in lagers, and attentive listeners will recall that, as we were referencing, it won our great Oregon Pilsner taste-off. woo <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Their CZAF, or Czech AF, I don't know how the preferred pronunciation is, we didn't ask him, actually, uh, was our, our champion Pilsner. Uh, So we have long long wanted to talk to Kevin about Wayfinder, his background, and his approach to making beer. And this seemed like a great opportunity to track him down. Uh, So that is our show today, mainly our interview with Kevin. Uh, But first, before we get to the interview, we have to get to...
1: interesting consequence of the current move corporations are making to scrub racist and racially charged images and names from their products, the 113-year-old New Orleans-based Dixie Brewery has announced plans to retire their name. Owner Gail Benson said of the announcement, with inclusive input, from all of our community stakeholders, we are preparing to change the name of our brewery and products that carry the Dixie brand, and these conversations will determine what brand will best represent our culture and community. That was pretty surprising to me, um, given how, how old it is, uh, and that it's actually the name of the brewery. Yeah. Uh, but I think it, it really highlights where we are in the country right now. Yeah, I think
0: it's um it's an amazing moment we're in right now uh where we're finally sort of coming to terms with our past uh probably well definitely long 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 overdue but all of these sort of things that we have taken for granted these symbols of uh of um antebellum south for example and and the civil war and everything represented are finally i think we're finally coming to terms with uh, so it's it's interesting to me that you know we've had these uh, movements in the past, but this is, I think, a real sea change in the attitudes of people. And, and, um, I think hopefully we'll, um, we'll see more of this and we'll be a better country because of it.
1: I agree. And I I think the, this is a good example of the subtlety that it's bringing. Dixie is not actually a particularly, uh, fraught or charged word. I don't think, uh, two months ago, many people would have considered it, um, super objectionable but given its its association with the Confederacy and sort of um, you know as a proxy word for the Confederacy in light of what's happened in the last two months you revisit it and you think well this is uh, <laughs> turns out this is a lot more objectionable than I thought and and so people are changing. Even even brand names like Dixie. I mean, it's not like the Washington football team or Aunt Jemima's nakedly racist. Um, and yet it, it's something that people are no longer comfortable with. And I, I think that's great thinking. Yeah, To go to a place of subtlety and thinking about something beyond just the naked meaning of the word into the more subtle aspects of, uh, you know. What these represent and whether they represent a company's values i think that's great
0: yeah and the thing is that you know for people our age particularly you know we've grown up with these terms and symbols and it's always been there and you stop questioning it or you stop thinking about it which is you know uh to our fault um so it's it takes uh sort of a great awakening like this i think to get people like um, uh i like to think of myself as uh progressive and open-minded and there's just things you don't even think about until you're sort of uh, confronted with them. So I think this is a great moment, uh, and it certainly made me rethink a lot of things uh, that I just sort of took for granted.
1: Right. This is the do the work that folks are asking of uh, of white folks, and so we're we're doing the work now, and, and things are changing, and it's fantastic.
0: Yeah. In coronavirus news, states that were on the vanguard of reopening their economies are now reclosing restaurants and bars. Jurisdictions that have closed bars include Florida, Texas, Colorado, Arizona, Michigan, and parts of California. A dozen states have been clocking more than a 1,000 new cases uh, a day over the past week. Uh, This is interesting. I think this is a clear distinction. Um, I'm not going to profess any particular knowledge, but from my reading of the evidence, you know, close quarters, indoors. Uh, bars are a particularly fraught place uh, because people are drinking and talking loudly and in very close contact with each other and getting drunk and forgetting to <laughs> to to, uh, to do the appropriate things and it. So I think that bars are particularly problematic. Um, pubs and, and places where you can sit outside and, and and that maintain these protocols that we've just been talking about, I think are a lot less problematic, but um,
1: disappointing. It is. And I think it goes to show that um, if we want these places to be open, if, if we want to be able to go to pubs like you and I did recently, and we... I certainly do. <laughs> uh, we actually need to tighten up and not loosen up. You know, we need to be more vigilant about wearing masks in and out of the restaurants or pubs and, you know, when, when we're in them to stay, to keep our distance and do all those things that will allow them to be safe enough for us to keep them open.
0: Yeah. And in Oregon, we've been very good and we've, we've uh, flattened our curve quite successfully. But even we're seeing a, a spike in, uh, in cases here. Um, so I yeah. think it just it just uh, speaks to, to remain vigilant uh, until we can have a therapy or a vaccine.
1: Totally. All right, the final no- note here is uh, that Hopstunner, the uh, giant hops company, announced the release of their latest proprietary hop variety called Contessa. According to the company, uh, it is a cross between a fuggle and a cascade. Con- mm-hmm. Contessa presents... Several similar qualities to that of the traditional German noble hop varieties, but is grown right here in the U.S. Contessa gives a pleasant floral, light pear, green tea, and lemongrass notes with smooth, well-rounded bitterness. It is said to be appropriate for loggers, but with that lineage, we wonder, I wonder, I think you might wonder also, if it wouldn't be ideal in a best bitter as well. Yeah, a, f- a
0: Fuggle c- Cascade Cross, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, that so sounds- I'm kind of
1: interested in this one
0: perfect for a best-bitter.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I, my, I my, When I read about this, my eyebrow went up. And I thought, hmm.
0: We've finally gotten over the, the lager mountain in craft beer, so now you tons of fantastic lagers are available. Uh, just, we, we've
1: done that work, so that, done that, that part work. of our work is done. So
0: I'm still waiting <laughs> for this next, the next mountain to climb, which is, which is these traditional English ales. Come on, people.
1: That's All right, well, be. you and I are that's that's our next mountain. Our next so the Contessa
0: mountain. Hop will be the will be the
1: the, the catalyst, I think. Yeah, maybe uh, you and I should get together and try to brew with this beer. Yeah, uh, maybe make a best beer with this. Nice. All right. We're so let's that. turn to
0: the main topic. Uh, before he landed in Portland at Wayfinder, Kevin Davy logged stops at Firestone Walker, Gordon Biersch, and Chuckanut over the past decade. He is one of the leading evangelists of not just loggers but Czech loggers as well, including that Pilsner we love and a tamave, a dark logger, called Hidden Hand. Uh, Jeff, is there anything you want to say before we jump into our interview? No, not at all.
1: Uh, I think we cover a lot of ground, and we can just let the interview speak for itself. All right, so here we are with Kevin Davy we are kind of excited to have you on Kevin. Um, I don't know if you're a giant follower of the podcast or not, but we, uh, the last two episodes, we did a, a, Pilsner tasting and, um, the Czech AF was our grand champion at the, at the end of all of that. We did, uh, 18 or, or so it was 16 Oregon Pilsners and, uh, we ended up really loving yours and thought this was a great opportunity. Yeah, I heard about that.
2: Uh, mainly because you sent me an email, but also because I should listen to more podcasts. tell <laughs> you the truth, ever since all this stuff has happened, like we're all working pretty, a long hour. I think that you're either working short hours or you're working long hours. This whole thing has really been disrupted. I'm on the long hour side of it, so I don't have time for podcasts, <laughs> Yeah, sadly. I should get into it. But, no, I, I think that's amazing that you guys like it. It's wonderful. It's been my you know, making really easy drinking lager beer is kind of all I've ever really wanted to do. And I feel like I'm really doing it. So I'm excited to be doing it. Well, let's use that
1: uh, wonderful segue into your background. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you uh, came to that place of loving and wanting to make good lager beer? What what was your, what's your background? I, we, we mentioned at the top some of the stops you made. But yeah. Just mentioning the breweries doesn't exactly tell your story. Yeah. Well, I
2: mean, I'm kind of just a working class guy. I, I ended up, being a maintenance guy in Seattle. I'm from Oregon, but I moved up there and then um, I was a maintenance guy for a couple properties and then became a plumber for seven years. And when I was a plumber is when I was really homebrewing a lot. And in Seattle in the 2000s, you could get IPA pretty regularly anywhere you went for craft beer. But the hard thing is not a lot of craft brewers were really into um, German style beers and Belgian style beers. That was kind of new and up and coming. Imported beers tasted old and imported. Sometimes they were wonderful, but those are the things that I always wanted to emulate when I was homebrewing. And I think I made like three IPAs total in those seven years of homebrewing or whatever I did.
1: And you were actually able to make homebrewed lager. That's a little bit challenging.
2: With that, the... te- at that time I had three refrigerators. <laughs> so uh-huh. I had a plumber salary and no kids. So <laughs> this, is the one, this is the one thing I did. I got off work and I would homebrew about two or three times a week during the week. And then I'd also homebrew on the weekends and, you know, I'd, when I wasn't homebrewing, I was cleaning bottles and making yeast pitches and trying to perfect my Dortmunder, check pills, whatever. Um, I found out real quick that you can't really, you're just not working with a big enough um, object to to take advantage of a lot of the nuances of beer. It's your equipment. You're always limited by your equipment and brewing, but also when you're homebrewing, you're not always at your home brewery. You know, it it's your job, you can you can be there at those important times to take gravities, move beer and stuff. And when you're homebrewing, sometimes it's really hard to get that stuff done. But yeah, um, did that for a bunch of years. And then, um, it was kind of my passion. I'd never gone to college. Um, I always wanted to travel the world, never really did that. So that led me to the world of brewing Academy, which is like the Siebel Dumans combo that they had come out with, like, I think about a year or two before it. Um, so it's like a few months in Chicago and then like about a month or a little more than a month in Europe. Um, in Germany, and then traveling around Europe, and that's when I that's when I fell in love with German lager beer more than anything else. Just like this is this is what I want to do. While I was doing that, I was emailing Will Kemper up at Chuckanut, saying, "You got to get me a job. I want to work for you more than anybody." Because he was he had opened up in 08, and I think I went in 09. I think I, I think I bugged him and Josh Freeman enough that they, they ended up hiring me. <laughs> <laughs> As a home brewer,
1: you know, we in, in, in the United States, we have a certain sense of what beer tastes like lager beer especially uh, through imports and it's different when you actually taste the beer in uh, Europe. Um, did t- talk about how your evolution changed by by tasting beer where it was
2: made. Oh I mean I think that there's no truer statement than that you know like really great beer is going to be fresh and um, I have friends that do German importing beer you know have German importing and I just when you get over there having it fresh is a completely different experience it's actually quite a bit hoppier than you'd think when it's fresh like like a lot of the aroma is still there and um i found even mm-hmm. with the belgian beers they were quite they were way more bitter than i thought they would be i remember having Westmall triple for the first time in mm-hmm. belgium and being like crap this thing's actually kind of bitter <laughs> maybe it was also that i was traveling around germany and not drinking a lot of bitter beer but um yeah i think that i think that there's there's nuance and to some of that stuff that kind of gets lost in transport. You know, you can't really take, like, something as delicate as beer and move it across the world and have it be the same thing. Just like our beer. Like, if you go over to – if you go in the middle of Norway and try a Sierra Nevada IPA, it might not be as good as you'd think. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> it, yeah. it, it had to go all the way over there. So, so then you went to Chukenet, which is, uh, you
1: know, for people who listen to this who don't know uh, – who are either or- in Oregon or maybe – from other parts of the country or world. Uh, mm-hmm. Checkinette is kind of the gold standard for lager beer uh, in the in the Northwest, for sure. Will Kemper is a longtime uh, lager beer evangelist. Oh, yeah. He he founded uh, Thomas Kemper back in the 80s and then then founded Chequenet, um I think, around uh, like 2006 or something? It like was 08. I think it was the uh, spring of oh, 08. Yeah. Okay, so what did you learn at Chuckanut that
2: you might not have learned at another brewery? Hmm. Well, Chuckanut was definitely the, uh, for me, it was the grad school kind of thing. Like, you know. mm-hmm. I spent a lot of money to go to school, and then I, I, you know, like everybody who gets into the brewing industry, you start with a pretty low wage. <laughs> it's just like, okay, postdoc, we're going to do this for a while. I mean, it wasn't horrible, but you know what I mean? It was uh, not something that – I wanted to do my own thing. So, you know, you have to kind of work for somebody else for a little while before you really, you know, get to do that kind of stuff. The, for Chuck it, like, I think that Will Kemper's approach um, is a lot different than a lot of other – craft brewers approaches, but I found that, so I I would consider myself like a Will Kemper brewer, but when I went, I ended up going to Firestone after that, and it really wasn't that much different. And then I went to Gordon Beershaw after that kind of ran my own show. I had a short stint at Georgetown Brewing, and I love everybody at Georgetown Brewing. But um, when I came back from California, I was there for about three months, and I think that was the most different brewery I've ever worked for, just because they didn't a lot of the ways that we made beer for the other two breweries just Georgetown figured a different way to do it, and so it was really a challenge for me. Mm. Will, Kemper, Will Kemper and Firestone, they both take a big brewing approach to making beer. Firestone because they're a big brewery, but Will Kemper mainly because he just learned a lot about big brewing and and then applied it to the small small brewing aspects.
1: So what do you mean by that? Describe for folks what what that, how that
2: differs from small breweries. A lot of it's just engineering and process. I don't know if I could really... I didn't come up with a list of, oh, that's a great example before I said that. I should have. <laughs> um, if you ask Will Kemper, he's going to give you a very long-winded answer, which is good because that's totally what Will does, and it's amazing. But <laughs> um, there are some things like colloidal stability, being able to hit temperatures correctly. There, there's some engineering as far as steam systems go and the way that he has that set up and some different stuff that, I don't know, filtration, some stuff that a lot of people just aren't really doing that we do. Gotcha um we did spending and kreuzening and stuff like that and i hadn't heard of anybody in the states doing it now it's pretty commonplace but even when we moved spending and kreuzening and stuff like that that's like when you're actually trying to collect the carbonation from the fermentation uh-huh. and uh, i think a lot of brewers here in portland knew about it but i didn't know a lot of them that practiced it and i feel like it's it's now that the lager revolution is finally here i it's far more commonplace which is great yeah these are techniques uh the germans use that you know people automatically use with lager
1: beer but but actually a lot of the stuff that the germans do could could be used in law in in ale brewing and other things too so it's interesting to see how these national traditions are speaking to each other and people are picking up different different practices and applying them to beers that they weren't originally intended for
2: well it's kind of interesting because american craft brewing is really young you know Mm -hmm. it's what 30 30 years old, 40. Wait, is it 40 now? No. Yeah, it's 40. Yeah, forty. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of the things that we've been telling ourselves is this is the way you make beer. You know, the rest of the world <laughs> doesn't you know, like some people figured it out in the 80s how to make beer. And now it's become doctrine. But that's not really true for the rest of the world. Right. Yeah. Um, Carbonation is a great example of it. Um, every every brewery style, whether it's Belgian or British or German or any of the, they they didn't use carbonation stones. That was more of a, you know, soda pop way of making beer because they just didn't exist. You know, at one point, you know, you had to figure out how to carbonate beer without without using something like that. So the British have Cascale, the Belgians, bubble Condition, and the Germans do this. Right.
1: Yeah, they're, they're interesting techniques. And it's um, it was interesting earlier in the coronavirus when uh, the CO2 crisis hit. Uh, I was thinking of all my German brewing friends and thinking, you know, this
2: would not be a crisis in Germany, the lack of CO2. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it is now kind of, you know, it, and it's tied to oil, I believe. I believe that um, exogenous CO2 is part of the oil refinement process. I think that's where a lot of um, bulk CO2 you buy huh. comes from there. So I think that's linked. I think that's why we had our shortage. Interesting.
1: Yeah, I have no idea where that came from. Uh, but let's. But uh, I, I could be wrong. Somebody sure will chime in and tell me I'm yeah, wrong. Yeah, we. We hope we, we count on our pedants to correct us on those things. Um, <laughs> let's, uh, let, let's move to coming to Wayfinder. Wayfinder was a new project. Uh, Charlie Devereaux was kind of the, 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 the guy on the brewing side behind that uh, of a group of partners. How did you get involved in that project? And, and, um, yeah, just talk about that. I actually I know I, this is a part of your story I don't know about, so I'm interested to hear.
2: Oh, <laughs> well, you know, I, I heard. So when I was at Gordon Pierce, I used to go up to this really cool craft beer bar called The Pine Box, still there, um, started by Ian and Mike, or Ian and Dean, um, these two guys in the craft beer scene. Ian worked at Brower's. Anyway, I'd bring in my growlers of beer because I was always making something new, but Gordon Pierce's beer never really left Gordon beer so I always wanted him to try them out. He told me that, that Charlie was doing uh, was doing this lager, lager brewery in Portland, and I was excited to just, uh, all I really wanted to do was work at a predominantly lager style brewery um, and Gordon Biersch was frankly I, I, I think it was slated for death as sad as that may sound but it's, I'm sad to be proven right about that they've closed the store that I used to work at. Um, so yeah I knew, I knew Charlie um, when he was working at Double Mountain there are these uh, brewers nights at this place called the Green Frog and I would go every Wednesday to try to make sure that uh, I met people in the brewing industry right when I started and that's where I met him. So I called him up out of the blue and said, hey, if you're going to open a lager brewery, you gotta, you're going to have to hire me because there's nobody better. than." Me. Really?
1: That's interesting.
2: You're not going to find anybody better.
1: <laughs> and it worked. Yeah, I don't know
2: why, but it did.
1: <laughs> That's pretty cool. Well, I think he did. I, I mean, I was talking to Charlie when he was uh, thinking about that project and actually told him, a few, gave him a few names when he did his, his big uh, Franconia, Bavaria, uh, Bohemia tour. And you know he he really had a vision, and I think it it required somebody who was prepared to, uh, it, you know execute the kind of beer that he was tasting there, which is this kind of stuff that you know Patrick and I, if you go back and listen to the last two podcasts, you'll hear us talk about the Czech Pilsner that you make, which is very characterful, very full flavored, um, even though it's only like five percent alcohol, uh, maybe even less than that. Um,
2: I think it's. Four-nine, four yeah.
1: actually, five on a good it's day. It's such a, it's such a robust beer, um, and it comes out of this kind of tradition where you you would not, you know, it's not so easy to figure out how to make this beer. He he would have had to find somebody who's been making lager beer for a long time. Um, am I right though that you haven't been to the Czech Republic? I've never been there, no, because that's you really nailed your Czech Pilsners, very Czech. Um, it oh, la- lacking the diacetyl.
2: <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, that's. We, we always say that uh, although the asshole is acceptable in some styles, the absence of the asshole is acceptable in all that's styles. Right. So. <laughs> yeah, I
1: think that's right. So um, where did you learn? So we should mention that you uh, do decoction. Um, it's kind of it's, it's weirdly a thing that you actually talk about at the brewery. It's kind of cool. Uh, you just released a, a beer, a decocted IPA, which we can talk about. Perhaps. Um, but yeah. Uh, where did you learn about decoction, and how is the brewery set up to do that well? With the Charlie plan for that, or did you bring that in, or how did that all work? And, and describe how you do your, de, your decoction.
2: Sure. Um, well, that was one hundred percent Charlie. Charlie really wanted to um, use decoction. I was not on the boat. I was not sold on decoction. Um, just from everything that I learned in Germany, that you know, it, was, it could be great. It you know, it's a You know, like when you when you look at brewing. There's pretty much, especially German style brewing. There's two minds at play. Always like there's an evil side and a and a and a a good side. And the depending on who you who you're talking to, which side's evil and which one's good. But you've got the technical, science, logic based person on one on one shoulder, and then you have Mr. Tradition on the other shoulder. Like well, this is like Grandpa always did it this way. Grandpa always did it this way. Don't screw it up. Grandpa don't. You know what I mean? So. Yeah. Um. A lot of the decoction stuff, we you, you know, you think that okay, a lot of these flavors we're gonna get from here, but you know, if you try to <laughs> try to actually pinpoint that down with some scientific merit, it's really hard to do. Um. So that's why I think that I had a hard time jumping into the jumping into the decoction boat immediately. But uh, no, we we bought a JV Northwest brew house out of Canby, um, and with trying to get a decoction kettle and they always called it a cereal cooker. It wasn't their first one. They've done, they've done these for other people, but, um, and a a lot of, a lot of craft brewers and American craft beer drinkers don't really know, but, um, cereal cookers are decoction kettles and American craft, or American non-craft beer has been doing decoctions forever, you know, specifically with Mm -hmm. rice. I was kind of at the point where it's like, well, we got to justify this thing. Like we bought this decoction thing. So I got to learn how to do it. (laughs) Uh, I bought a bunch of books from Europe and uh, just kind of did a deep dive on it and uh, talked to a bunch of friends. And uh, that's that's all you can really do. Uh, I had a friend. I've got a close friend who um, used to work with Will in Turkey. And he had a a friend from Czech Republic that was a brewer. And I just kind of uh, talked his year off and came up with how to do Czech our check AF seems to be working. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, you know, for people who
1: are in that in that space of thinking maybe maybe decoction is, you know, more uh, more trouble than it's worth, or it doesn't contribute that much, or can you even taste it? I have to tell you, uh, Patrick and I, during our, our tasting, we immediately, we in, we could tell that your beer was decocted just by looking at it. You know, it, it was, uh, there were, we knew that there were a few beers. We actually had a uh Pilsner. Um, we, and we had, uh, or quells, uh, just there as kind of, uh, to make, to make sure that we could, um, that, you know, they were sort of like, uh, controls so we could see yeah. if, if people were going too far uh, afield and the, the thickness that you get, the color that you get, um, it really has a pretty profound effect on the
2: beer. It's funny you say that because, uh, when we first, when I first brewed it, um, I got no color pickup. And I haven't changed anything about it other than I started adding a caramel malt to get the color that we needed. Oh, that's how you did it. <laughs> I mean, it, it sounds kind of like heathenistic, but it's just like, well, <laughs> I, I, I'm trying to get to an end goal. And I know what this beer is. Um, I'm not trying to say that you can't use caramel. I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm a bit of a heretic. I don't really care how you get there. It's proofs it's in the pudding. Um, well, you know, uh, Kaut,
1: which is this, uh, brewery that has gone out of business in the Czech Republic, um, shocked me, uh, when we were talking and, and they meant, they mentioned that they also use caramel malt and that, um, and this is a, a Boroslav, uh, Hlavsa is the guy who is the, was the brewer there and he had brewed for, uh, for in the sixties and had been kicking around the Czech forever. Yeah. And he said it was totally traditional and a lot of brewers do it. So <laughs> Well like, maybe uh, you you know, I you see just skin that way, okay. too. I think, I think you don't have to feel anything about that. It's uh apparently it's a kosher way to go. I think
2: so. You know, it's it's kind of funny because it's like it a lot of the reason you get the color in older brew houses that the cocked is because they have a copper kettle. You know. Um, uh-huh. The copper is just such a better conductor over any heat source, but usually copper kettles. Um, are going to be directly fired. And uh, you'll usually have like a paddle at the bottom of the kettle with, um, a, with a big chain across the paddle. And you're and you're constantly turning it just to anything that's on the bottom you're trying to keep from scorching, you know, especially hops and stuff like that, burning the hops on the bottom. And you'd also mash in the same thing. So once you take away, I mean, you can still boil with, without that, you know, 1,500-degree heat source, and you move that heat source down to 300 degrees, but you're just not going to scorch it as much. Um, so is it better? Is it worse? I don't know. It's, it's far more efficient. It's better, you know, maybe it's a little bit better for the environment. <laughs> um, I don't know. Like I know that like it's, it's very expensive to build an old copper brew house and use it for decoction just because of, uh, a fairy tale you might have about color and beer.
1: Right. Uh, Patrick, we, we went deeply into the, uh, the brewing weeds here. Would you like to, uh, leaven it with a uh an econ question or something something else <laughs> <laughs> well
0: i just i just thought it would be uh i'll speak for the lay person here and uh ask uh either one of you guys if you could give like a simple description of decoction you do a double decoction is that right kevin
2: uh i i've done single double and quadruple i've never done a triple though so yeah. I, oh <laughs> saving that, the, that for something in the future i guess but yeah i know you what you're trying to do is um you know decoction kind of came about so okay we'll go way back in the way back you took barley and you germinated it um just so that you could actually break it down so like you're soaking it in water just imagine somebody literally pulled some barley out of a field they're going to soak it they're going to spread it out wait for it to wait for it to germinate and then they're going to cook it and then then it's then it's stable it's a stable product that you can uh, you can keep in some sacks and you can make beer during the year when you do that right how they described it in germany was you know each little village um would pay to have a foundries make them a big copper pot and it was kind of like almost socialistic each village had a brewer but the people in the village um pretty much paid the brewer just to make their beer with their barley. It's like they bring in their barley and then they'd get a, they'd get a cut, you know? Um, right, right. So you'd mash all the grain with water, and it, brewing used to be so laborious, you would literally start a fire to this copper pot, and you'd have to be stirring this thing the whole time. And so you'd go from pretty much cold water to boiling. You'd boil the whole thing. Um, and you can mm-hmm. imagine, since it's so slow, you're um, you're going through every enzymatic step. All the way up, so you're you right. know um, you're breaking down that starch almost completely, and then you're going to move it to some type of um, device in which you're going to louder, usually in like a wooden uh, like a wooden cask with some, uh, straw at the bottom or something. Um, right. And then you run run off the liquidy liquid back in the kettle and boil it. Uh, to make sure it's nice and sterile, and you'd add whatever kind of potpourri you'd want, whether it's hops or whether it's, you know, opium or whether it's, you know, whatever would, you know, kind of balance that sweetness. <laughs> there was a reason the Red got put started. It was to tell people, like, uh, quit getting everybody high on beer as a food source. <laughs> At least that's what the Germans tell us now. Um, yeah, and I think po- there were poisoning agents in there as well. Which yeah, I mean, okay. people didn't really know, like, okay, we're going to use, you know, you branches or something you know like or sumac you know maybe we shouldn't be using that you know like just because right. it gets you kind of screwed up that these m- mushrooms just because they get you kind of screwed up doesn't mean it's better beer um especially when so many people in the kingdom depend on beer so anyway what you're trying to do is boil the darn thing um at some point, people figured out that boiling the whole thing and stirring it was a pain in the ass. So they found out if they just mashed it all with cold water and took out a few buckets and boiled those and added them back and kept doing that, mm-hmm. they'd achieve the same. They achieved the same thing without ever having to boil the whole dang thing, thing. So it took right. less fire. Right. It took less stirring. And uh, the thing is, nobody nobody really had thermometers. You know that was a relatively new invention. So. Um, understanding of how enzymes worked, understanding of how yeast worked, understanding how all these things happen was really um, not everyone's forte. So um, there, there became decoction. And then remember, brewing is one of the probably the second oldest profession. And, uh, <laughs> you know, like it's because it's so such an old way of doing things, people always harken back to tradition, always like, well, this worked worked for my grandpappy. I'm going to keep doing it this way because I know the beer comes out right. I remember right. our professor in uh, in uh, Germany, he was saying, Oh, yes, pills no malt, no problem. You can do single infusion mashing and have perfect runoff. Great, telus, no problem. And uh, one of the students just goes, uh, Hey, uh, what do you use in your brewery? And he goes, Of course, we have to do tri- triple decoction. And we all <laughs> cracked <him>. <laughs> <laughs> Well, why triple decoction? And, and he's like, Oh, of course, we've been making Hellas in here for five hundred years. I cannot just stop making Hellas with triple decoction because I start working there. You know. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's a great. Story. All right. So now
0: I'll ask the econ. I'll ask the econ <laughs> follow up, which is uh, it sounds like a, a time-consuming, labor-intensive, and expensive way to make yeah. beer. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I'm still trying to justify it with my long hours. Like, do I really want to do another decoction today? Keep like, I was the schedule like, God darn it. Got two brews to do today and one of them is a decoction. I don't want to do that.
0: <laughs> okay. And I get it now.
1: <laughs> how does, how does your, uh, your pilster compare to uh, uh, your hazy uh, flower in the kettle? Is that what it's called? Am uh-huh. I getting the, the words right? Yeah. Uh, I guess it's not exactly a hazy. Anyway, you can describe that, but uh, a high hop beer that has a ton of more expensive ingredients. How to, how expensive is it compared to those?
2: Um, as far as the malt goes? <laughs>
1: um, no, I was the whole thing. Like, is it still really, I mean, is your labor worth a lot more than hops?
2: <laughs> yeah. How do you, how do you justify that? Um, I don't know. Uh, Right now, I'm salary, so my labor is worth the same whether I work hard or I work not hard. So there's that. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't prefer that, but I'm trying to figure out a work-life balance here.
1: <laughs> I need to figure out a way to unionize uh,
2: brewers. I think that's what needs to I. I think that would be very noble, actually. But don't don't tell the boss that. <laughs> that's a different that. discussion. That's a different discussion. Right. <laughs> we'll, we'll meet it. We'll meet at Horse Brass one late night, and we will talk about it. Yeah,
1: yeah, that would be cool. Uh, so another really cool thing about Wayfinder um, that I was kind of dimly aware of, and uh, 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 it, I'm, I'm thinking of your draft system. Yeah. And uh, uh, will you talk about that and tell people uh, what what's going on there? Because this is a really fascinating thing. You, so if you go to Wayfinder, the cool thing I have to – brag a little bit about wayfinder it's a it's a great pub um charlie really wanted to replicate the experience of, of these drinking cultures of of lager country and so it's it's um it, it actually kind of has a feel of a czech or, or german brewer uh, brew, you know, house brewery uh and then uh you guys have wonderful glassware so if you order uh the hellas it comes in a dimple glass if you order the, the pilsner it comes in a tall glass if you yeah. order the Light then, it comes in a vase. Like you, you guys really pay attention to all of that. And then the other thing you'll notice is when you get one of these beers, they just have this incredibly fluffy, uh, rich heads on them. Um, and I think all of that makes the experience of being there really great. And one of the things that, that contributes to that is this draft system you have. So will you talk about that?
2: Well, I, yeah, that's a that's another great question for Charlie, but um, or what he was, I. I I think the draft system was amazing, um, but when Charlie first focused on this, he was trying to make a cathedral for, for he wanted to even you can see on top of the bar how we have a lot of the glasses hanging that was part of the design of our, our beer. We wanted people to feel like you're in like a glassware, you know, haven. Like you like glassware, you like your beer in, in a certain glassware. We'll go to Wayfinder and you're going to get it done. And I think it's it's one of those things where. Um, there's so much craft beer out there where people were opening up, you know, Charlie was doing this in 2013, 2014, envisioning this thing. And there's so many craft breweries that opened up and we're still using shaker pints for everything. And it's just like, God, we really got to get out of that. We really got to make a pub. We got to make a pub better, you know, like we know better. So why aren't we doing it? You know? um, I think there's, there's a period of that. And then there's also, this is something that I, I was a big champion of. And I, I think that um, Charlie felt the exact same way. And that's one of the reasons that I think we ended up working together is that all the German style breweries have been very um, Oompa music and uh, later hosen and pretzels and, you know, that whole thing, you know, and, and not that it's, I'm not trying to like discredit anybody who does that. I think that's great, but um I think that if you do that with any other culture that wasn't like German, you know, it would be seen very appropriate. Of, but also, like, why can't this be a why can't we make German style beer and be distinctly American? Why can't we have, why can't it just feel like an American place, but also do this well, you know? And just, if you go to Europe, you have great glassware everywhere you go. Why, why, why in America are we so cheap about it? Like, why don't we just do it? <laughs> See if it works. <laughs> it seems to be working. Um, the draft system itself, we put in, um, those, uh, side pole taps that you'll see they're from Czech Republic. Um, you submit like beer and a few other places have gotten really popular over the years. Um, but then we also installed some, just some re- regular, really, really great taps, uh, from Tapright. So we could fill growlers and samples and just do, you know, do like what regular craft breweries do. Um, both, both of them are designed to pour beer with good head. And, um, Frankly, we didn't want to open a pub in twenty sixteen, brew pub in twenty sixteen, and not be able to pour with good head. You know, we're making beers that are very carbonated. Carbonation is an ingredient in our beer. You know, like Mm -hmm. if 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 you know that carbonic acid is the ingredient, you're trying to emulate that. Like, how could you how could you say that's not important anymore? (laughs) You know, it's a very important pro, very important um, thing in our beer. It really is, and uh, there's something about a big. Gorgeous white
1: head that is uh, sensual and attractive, and when yeah. um, you when you have a nice vigorous bead feeding it, it's uh, it's quite lovely.
2: Yeah, I mean that. In a uh, um, what am I trying to say? <laughs> uh, clear beer, you know. I wanted to make a lot okay. of different beers that were lots of different colors and lots of different levels of clarity. That was what. I I, I'm not anti-unfiltered beers, nor am I anti-hazy beer. And I think that um, if there's anything you could take away is that I don't think there's one right way to do anything. But if you're going to make it clear, it needs to be brilliantly clear. And if you're going to make it hazy, it needs to be perfectly hazy. It shouldn't be muddy, and it should not be, you know, like, achieve what you're trying to achieve. That's really what uh, my goal has always been. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And that's why the New England IP. I think that there is... You know, I'm pretty close with some friends at Craft beer Alliance and making the Widmer Hefeweizen. It's hard to do. You know, it's not an easy thing to make. It's not an easy thing to make stable, hazy beer. So as a scientist, I think it's a I think it's a challenge.
1: Yeah. And there's I, I think um, one thing we as a culture haven't gotten too deeply into yet is what when we're trying when we're trying to make a hazy IPA, what what is attractive haze you know <laughs> what 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 looks good and what looks bad i know what looks bad <laughs> yeah patrick and i talk about this <laughs> on the podcast a lot you know we'll we'll get these weird gray beers that know. Uh, you know have a silty flavor and um or you know silty mouthfeel and it's like this this doesn't seem right <laughs> i know people are going crazy for this beer but this is just objectionable uh it doesn't look good and it uh yeah it's just weird
2: I, yeah, I would say that is a hundred percent for, I mean, I actually have a bit of passion for hazy beer. I don't really drink a lot of them, but I, when when I feel like they're more, they're harder for me for, for my taste, they're harder to get right. Like, uh, like an 80% hazy beer, I'd rather just not drink. I need to have like a 95% good. You know what I mean? It needs to be like pretty freaking wonderful for me to really love it, fall in love with it. Um, and if it's, if it's overly gray, you have too much yeast in it. if there's a bunch of yeast in it, then you're getting yeast bite. You know, that's yeah. a lot of the hop, hop matter that's like stuck on the outside of the yeast cell. That's not it's not a flavor positive thing, in my mind. Not a flavor positive thing. I'm going <laughs> to ask you about your Kolsch because I was there yesterday. And man, yeah. that,
1: you, you made a Kolsch that was uh, both really tasty and lovely and also not super Kolsch like. It was kind of a, you had some off speed pitches there going on. It was pretty lager like. Um, and uh, the hops were very spicy. In a, in a, they were very German, but not um, not like anyone I'd had when i have been in, to Cologne. Do um, you want to talk about that beer? Uh, I sure. <laughs> I just love that beer. So, uh,
2: I mean, I made a lot beer. of very traditional Kolsch at Chuckanut, and my goal when making Kolsch wasn't I want to make Chuckanut Kolsch. <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. trying to do something different. You know, um, there's actually a Kolsch convention that, you know, um, where they decided what Kolsch really is. And I'm lucky enough to be super best friends with uh, my buddy, Brian Cardwell, who works at Freem, but used to work with me at Chuckanut. And we've always been big Kolsch people. And uh, he did kind of a deep dive on, you know, what specific gravity, what kind of bittering, what, you know, where does fermentation temperature really need to be? Like what is Kolsch? And you're allowed to interpret it after you get that base, you're allowed to do whatever you kind of want to with it within reason. I kind of feel like what I was trying to do with our Kolsch was to, to take a, take what Kolsch is and, and have it appeal to a German. You know what I mean? Like somebody in Cologne would drink that and be like, Oh, that's still Kolsch. And that's really lovely. It's a nice different take on it. Uh-huh. So it's made with middle through hops. So that's probably where you're getting the spiciness. Um, okay. but it's also, um, made with a newer Huel variety called, uh, Kalista and Kalista has more of this, uh, spicy, uh, berry, um, lemon kind of thing and there's not a lot of it i don't i tried not to overdo it i don't i don't really like over overdone german german hop beers but um i really wanted to make the fruit kind of not only come from the yeast but also come from that from that um newer hop varieties as well because i felt like that could be really lovely so it's also bone dry um if it does it taste, bone dry yeah <laughs> if it tastes and that's another thing that brian really hit so if your next goal is go find Freemkosch, um that came out just recently. It's I had some last night at this winemaker's party that I was hanging out with. Um, it's also fantastic. Um, uh, Brian did a bang up job on that one too. Um, okay. We took a few more liberties, but you know I'm, I'm making it for an American audience, and I don't really want it to be. Um, I don't I don't know I'm, I don't have the Umpa music and the and the later and I don't need it to be super authentic. I want it to be. A, um, a newer interpretation of a classic style.
1: Yeah, I thought it was really interesting because it tasted entirely german and yet it didn't taste like a typical kolsch, which was a, a a really unusual way to go. It's not like it tasted american at all. There wasn't uh you know any anything in it that was like that, but it was um yeah, it was totally unusual and cool. I love kolsches. They're so often um not given the respect by brewers, you know, they just they're they're kind of like a a German pale ale uh, people don't seem to try to coax the character out of them that they could. they could, if they considered all the elements. And
2: you um, can learn a lot about a brewery by trying their kolsch. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, that's true. It's kind of funny. Uh, Brian also had this really great quote when we were at Chuck and it, or he had this funny joke when we were at Chuck and it, that I like to talk about that, you know, you go to these brew pubs, this was like 10 years ago, but he would say, Oh, you go to these brew pubs and, um, they make mainly ales and uh, you see down the line, it'll be like, you know, pale ale, stout, amber, IPA, wheat. And at the very end, it'll just say lager. And um, you ask the person <laughs> what the lager is and they're like, well, it's something we make for light. I don't know. I think it might be a Kolsch right now. It's just for really the light drinkers. We don't really care about it. And so Brian always thought it'd be really funny to like be a lager brewery and have like a Vienna Helles Pilsner, uh, Czech Pilsner, you know, um, Junkel. And then at the very end, just have ale. And just, uh, it's some poppy. It's I don't know, it's poppy and boozy. I people that like ales like it. <laughs> That's pretty funny.
1: So, how well is logger selling? Yeah, Patrick and I have a, a huge vested interest in this. And I would I've ever since this experiment, the Wayfinder experiment started, I've been wondering. You know, if, when I go to Wayfinder originally, when you when you first started, there were a lot of loggers on and a few IPAs, and you know. Uh, uh, you, you tried to offer something for everyone, but it was really—you were re- obviously very committed to loggers, and I was worried that over time I would see fewer and fewer loggers. Um, that does not seem to have happened, and I'm wondering how how things are going. Are you are you, uh, are, you are you finding a fan base like Patrick and me?
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> we're we're finding a really good fan base. We've always so Charlie's whole idea with this was you know 50% IPA, 50% logger. Be able to make those IPAs and be a player in IPA so that, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be un, unthought of when it comes to, you know, the other half or the other three quarters, 80% of craft beer drinkers who mainly drink hoppy beers. Um, but it's kind of been like I've kind of interpreted that as like how about 80% of our sales, I'm sorry, 50% of our sales is IPA. So if I can do that with two IPAs and the rest are loggers, cool. Like <laughs> so yeah. you ask a lot of beer sales guys and they'll say if you get an IPA handle on at a bar, that's the best selling handle, you know, like period end of story. Sure. But Pilsner's number two. So it's been kind of it's been an interesting thing because Lager is getting far more popular, but we've also I don't I don't feel like changing anything. So like if if it's if people in Oregon aren't really buying as much lager as we want them to, then we can sell it somewhere else and have no problem selling out. So we've been selling a lot to Seattle, and um, they take every drop we give it. Up there, our lagers are far more popular than our IPAs because you know there's just not as many players in the game. That's it's
1: interesting to hear you say that the second most popular tap in pubs is pilsners um how how recent is that is that, and is that just a portland thing
2: um maybe it's just a portland thing but i i can guarantee you if you talk to some of the sales i talk at length you sales guys and they're like yeah if you get that pilsner handle on you can move a lot of product uh which is great you know when it comes down to it i think ashley beer stat's my favorite she has a quote that is just like, well, Pilsner's got a 150 euro record, you know, like it's still number one. <laughs>
1: it's still right. the most
2: popular beer in the world. So I don't think that really changes. You know, I, I think that if you're making a really good one and it's served in an elegant way, I think people will, will enjoy it. They just, you know, it's, it's hard to... I think that especially around Portland, when you have like kind of like dive bars, you know, like, okay, I'll just have an IPA because I'm just going to be here for a little bit. And uh, the glassware doesn't look that great. And it kind of smells like fried chicken in here. And, you know, (laughs) maybe a pilsner wouldn't sell as well. But um, if I'm out to a nice dinner, I'd much rather have a pilsner than an IPA. Sure.
1: Yeah, I do think uh, that was actually one of the ways that pilsners became more popular in Portland is that chefs started uh, wanting them instead you know. of IPAs, which overwhelm their, their – <laughs> they work so hard to make this great food, and then you're going to blast it with this giant IPA.
2: <laughs> yeah, that or they're going to sell a um, Montucky cold snack with – next to their good food. It's just mind-blowing. The cheap beer is so popular in high-end restaurants, and even David Chang will come out and say, hey, I drink PBR. I don't drink any of these craft beers. It's like – Right. Why would you admit that? <laughs> it's, like, it's like saying, all I eat is McDonald's. I don't want to eat any fancy food. Like, well, there, I mean, it's fine if you want to eat McDonald's. but
1: <laughs> You know, there's a way in which those very light lagers can be incredibly good. And I know you you have made a number of those and you have that cereal cooker. So you can actually make uh, light lagers that have um, rice or corn in the grist. Um, yeah. So w- when you're making those lagers, how are you trying to make them different than, uh, uh, you know, a traditional domestic? What do you look how do you get the character in?
2: I, I think a lot of it has to do with using a nicer malt and um, using a, a good amount of expensive hops. Um, I think that when you when you get to the level of Miller High Life and some of these other ones, um, you're really you're making commodity beer. You're making something that is it's not supposed to be fawned over. It's just cheap. The package is far more expensive than the product inside. Um so there's a lot of room for growth there is what I, is what I see. I think that you can, you know, like we did this beer called number six and it's made with um, rice and uh, American two row pilsner malt. Mm-hmm. And um, that's about it. But we're very mindful of um, the type of malt that we're putting in, but also the hops. It's a blend of like four, four different European hops and some new ones in there. There's, I think it's Hallertau Blanc. And uh, Zotz and Tedning and I think there's Hertzbrooker, you know, uh, just everything's very low alpha and we use a lot of it. And that's a, a good trick, a secret handshake into making good longer beers than might is using a little bit more of something <laughs> really good that doesn't actually offer that much flavor, but it really does improve that beer.
1: Mm, that is a handy tip.
2: A good, uh, something I think a lot of craft brewers, you know, because I've read, you know, Joy of Homebrewing, also, alpha is alpha, it doesn't matter, you know, where you get your bitterness from. It can be Galena, it can be Summit, it can be Warrior, you know. But I think that if you talk to German brewers, they're like, oh, no, 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 no it very much matters.
1: <laughs> so, well, it certainly does seem to very much matter. And I, I, you have been brewing for professionally for over a decade, I'm guessing you have found it to matter as well yeah (laughs) i think that's also a secret (laughs) handshake is bittering hops matter yeah patrick i have not let you get a very many words in here
0: (laughs) well i was actually uh just uh itching to make the comment that uh it seems like almost an eon ago uh 2016 when wayfinder first uh came online as a uh shockingly uh of all things, lager forward brewery. Um, and just how much that landscape has changed. Now everyone's got a Pilsner. And, and as we know, we just tasted 16 of them in Oregon. They're damn good yeah. <laughs> across the board. So it just seems like that landscape has changed dramatically in such a short time.
2: <clears throat> Isn't that wonderful?
0: <laughs> it is. It's fantastic. It's, it's amazing. I And, and uh, uh, I don't know. Um, I, I, I often think that this has a lot to do with my age, but I'm sort of transitioning away from drinking a lot of big, uh, hoppy, higher alcohol beers and um, just uh, enjoy those lower alcohol, lighter, uh, more subtle beers much, much more. Um, I don't know if it's just a matter of my palate progressing or if just, uh, I also feel like it's part of age. I just can't handle like big boozy beers very much. And I, I like to, I like to sit around and chat for a few hours and over, 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 great beers. So maybe
2: there is some. Maybe I there's some validity that. to that. Maybe the people that really like our beers are just kind of over getting their mouth stripped off with flavor, and maybe I, I haven't been converting a lot of the new drinkers into craft beer, but uh, maybe I don't know.
0: I, I don't yeah. Do you I, notice? Do you notice anything at the when you're sit when you're uh, behind the bar? Uh, who's drinking the the flour in the kettle versus the uh, the C Z A F?
2: Uh, Flower in the Kettle is, um, you know, surprisingly a lot more women than you would think. <laughs> um, yeah. Not that yeah. it's like feminine it's or anything. People. It's not there's plenty. I mean, there's plenty of it's It's both sexes. But I remember when I so my mom lived in Oregon here in the Portland area. And even when I was living in Seattle, and my brother and I would visit it for like Thanksgiving and stuff. We'd go to John's Market, and load up on IPAs and double IPAs and all sorts of cool stuff. And so after Thanksgiving dinner, we'd run over there and grab some cool beers and then um, sit on the back porch and drink these cool beers. My mom would come over and she'd try this double IPA from Stone or something. And she'd make like a, <laughs> the biggest nasty face that she could. She's like, how can you guys drink that? It's so disgusting. And um, and we would just kind of laugh it off. But then um, flash forward to now when I'm making hazy IPAs, my mom comes into the brewery and she ordered her favorite beers, Flower in the Kettle. You, you know, it's yeah. it's really it's fruity. It's it's got a lot of grapefruit and uh, aroma, and uh, it's not too bitter, and it's got a little bit of booze to it. It's it's really a pleasant beer, right? It is.
0: I love it, <laughs> but I also love the the, the pilsner and samave. Um, oh. So uh, I'm a big fan no, of this beer. And,
1: and how are things going in coronavirus? Are you guys hanging in there?
2: Ah, uh, we're doing okay. Yeah, I mean, it's I don't know what the what it looked like this weekend, but uh, this is our first week open and uh, things were slow, but, you know, I don't think it was too crazy slow for, you know, where we are in this world. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, we've got it pretty well spaced out. Everyone's wearing masks. Everyone's wearing gloves. Uh, There's no seating inside. So you just go inside to use the restroom and it's one person in the restroom at a time. So I, I feel really comfortable with where Wayfinder is on this. And other than that, we're selling almost all of our beer in package and can to go. So and if Portland doesn't buy it, then we sell it to Seattle or California. And as long as we can keep selling beer and keep making beer and keep the lights on until hopefully there's a vaccine and things start getting back to normal. That's what that's what I want.
1: Well, that's a happy note to end on. Right. (laughs) Yeah, that's
2: good to hear. We're uh,
1: we're very, very interested in your survival. So um... thanks everybody in the sound of our voice if you can buy their
2: beer uh, support your local brewery and do that yeah it's important um i think that that was that was the biggest reason for me to make that american light lager was the day after you know what was it um red tuesday or whatever you want to call it the day that we had to close all our bars um i just I, I called some friends that own breweries and I'm like, I don't know what we're going to do here. And he's like, I don't know what we're going to do here. And man, I, I like nearly broke down in tears. Like I was just like, what's going on. And then all these people just started showing up and just buying all our growlers and just buying all the beer that we could give them. And it was all I could do to fill as fast as I could. And it was like this moment, like in where, uh you know, Jimmy Stewart, and uh, it's a wonderful life where it's like <laughs> the whole town comes together and tries to support their brewery. It was really magical and cool. And, uh, I had this like moment where I like to have a crappy American lager in a can and a bourbon when I'm out drinking. And I had this moment where I was just like, I don't think I'm ever going to do that again. I don't think I'm ever going to give those big guys any more money ever again. Forget about it. So that was kind of when I had that. All right. Well, if I still like that kind of beer, let's just take that from them. Let's just brew it ourselves. It's not going to be the same price, but it'll be just as lovely. It'll be better. You know, we can do this better than them. So we need to turn off our our craft high horse thing about this and just be able to take this away from them. That's what I feel. Very cool. Well, Godspeed on that endeavor. Thanks.
1: <laughs> I'll try. Indeed. And we really appreciate you uh, joining us. Uh, I know you're really busy uh, and people will really love to hear you, so I appreciate you taking the time. And, yeah, no problem. and again, we loved your Pilsner, so thanks for that. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, guys. Congratulations. Yeah,
2: thanks. <laughs> yeah, that's going up on the wall. For <laughs> winning
0: the most, the most prestigious prize <laughs> in
2: <the
1: Yeah>. <laughs> Forget about the
2: GABF, man. Yeah, I already have.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right, Kevin <laughs> Davey from Wayfinder Brewing here in Portland, Oregon. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, cheers. Thanks, guys
0: thanks to kevin Davy for joining us uh from wayfinder look for wayfinder beer uh, wherever fine beers are sold and at your favorite bar uh and pub um, or just go straight to the source to, to wayfinder itself which is fantastic and open now
1: <laughs> yes for the moment right. at least
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right for now uh don't screw it up people <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wear your masks <laughs> Alright, a few words going out. Please subscribe on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Did I how did I how did I pronounce that? Or wherever you get your podcast. And don't forget to rate us. Five stars, please. That helps other listeners find the show. We'd love to hear from you, so please send your questions or comments to Jeff at BeervanaBlog.com or on Twitter at Beervana Pod. Jeff blogs at the Beervana blog and he tweets at birvana,
1: And Patrick tweets at Beeranomics.
0: Well, uh, we'll have to virtually cheers again, because I am actually uh, have nothing in front of me, but I do have a dry mouth, so I don't think that'll last long. Uh, yeah. So in the... I, it, go ahead.
1: I've been drinking my own home-brewed Pilsner here, so...
0: Oh, yeah. You told me about that. I can't wait to try.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> you know, right, well, uh, it's no Wayfinder, but it's not, it's not half bad for me.
0: <laughs> yeah, we have low expectations when we... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <clears throat> All right. Well, Uh, uh, cheers, Jeff.
1: All right. Cheers to you, Patrick. And we'll see you next time. Yep. Till next time. Bye, folks.